Hi, my name is Steve Taylor. Welcome to the ShareEd podcast, created by Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust. Hi everyone, and a warm welcome to the podcast today. Now, in series two of ShareEd podcasts, we're gonna be focusing on leadership, specifically leadership from within education and leadership from outside of education. And to kick us off today, we're interviewing Sir David Carter. Now, for those of you who don't know Sir David, he worked for the DfE right at the top as National Schools Commissioner. In other words, he oversaw education and academisation for all academies and multi-academy trusts across England. He was a massive inspiration because he was the first person from the DfE to really start talking with a sense of realism about the school improvement journey. He also ran his own multi-academy trust prior to that. And since then, he's gone on to inspire lots of leaders via the Ambition School Leadership Programme and also through the National College of Education. He gives us a really honest insight into what it's like to work for the DfE and how he felt he made a difference in some areas, but had some barriers to overcome in others. I think you're going to be really inspired by his story and we hope you get a lot out of it. Okay, David, so thank you for coming on the podcast today and welcome. Hi, Steve. It's good to be with you. It's a, a massive honour to uh, to have you. You know, you've done uh, you've done so much in your career that I think a lot of us would really um, envy towards and aspire to. And the reason we got you on this podcast was because you know I've come across you in your role as National Schools Commissioner. I'm doing an MBA at the moment, and you're um, you're you're on that as well and leading that 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 program. And I think what's always come out for me and for a lot of others who come across you is that you've always been really open, honest, ambitious, but I think that you are one of the few people in the DFE um, at a national school commissioner level who really, who's really got school improvement to the point where in terms of the time to that it takes and a realistic approach. And I think when you came in as National Schools Commissioner, you made a big impact on us all because you started talking with a sense of realism rather than you've got to flip a school really quickly. So I think part of this interview today is going to, you know, it's, it's a leadership focus and it'd be great to explore um, your role as National Schools Commissioner, what you're going on to from there and how you see leadership generally. So, um, so can you tell us a little bit about when you first started at, at, at National Schools Commissioner uh, and how you found the role initially and what attracted you to it? Yeah, no, I mean, that was a that was a fantastic period of my career. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I've been very fortunate in, in that I've, I've, I've pretty much enjoyed every job I've ever had. And I, I became a head in 1997 uh, at Deer Park School in Sirencester. Um, and then moved into Bristol and set up the Cabot Learning Federation. And I really enjoyed that. And then it got to 2014 and the regional schools commissioners were put in place. And, and, and that really caught my imagination because I, I thought the RSC role was really going to be about um, the things that I cared about, which is school improvement, which we'll talk about, but about collaborations, building networks, you know, sharing around the system, what was working and what wasn't working. Um, and and it, was a, it was a really exciting time to go into it. And I, and I enjoyed that job a lot. So I'd had a around about 15 months of the RSC Southwest role before the National Schools Commissioner job became available. Um, and I applied for that and was, and was appointed into it. And, and I suppose that I'd summarise the challenge moving into the job uh, in this way. It was really how, how do you go into what was, a, what was ultimately a director level senior civil servant post yeah. 
but bring your school improvement, school leadership uh, experience with you and slap that on the table and, and put that alongside the policies that were in place. And, and you'll remember, because you, you've been in this world for a while as well, you know, that the rhetoric has always been, certainly since 2010, if we simply change the structure of a school and we take it from being a maintained school and make it into an academy, almost as if by waving a magic wand, that great things will suddenly happen. And, and I know having done that in Bristol with some really challenging schools, that, that that wasn't the truth. That wasn't the case at all. Yes, becoming an academy, setting up a multi-academy trust gave me a vehicle to, to perhaps go quicker with school improvement than I would have done otherwise. But on its own and, and of itself, that, was not, that wasn't the solution. So I wanted to try to build a language with the RSC team about how would we, how would we judge the, the calibre and the capacity of trusts to improve school. And the first thing you're going to do if you're going to have that conversation is you've just got to be honest about the fact that, that some of the most broken schools in this country take, just take time to improve. It's, it's, it's not a quick fix. Um, and, and, I, and I worry about this notion that it's still, I think, prevalent a little bit, that if, you, if you've got an outstanding judgment from Ofsted, all of a sudden you're the best equipped school in the country to go and sort out a special measure school. And, I, and, I, and I'm just not convinced by that. Because if I, if I look at the school, the school leaders and the schools and the trusts around the country who are doing this day in, day out, they are, they are, they are schools and leaders who've taken schools from like requiring improvement to good. They know what it smells like. They know what the challenge on the ground is. They know what the chaos feels like. And, and, and I was really interested to find out what it was that people had done so that I could tell people about it and share it more broadly. So um, it, was, it was relatively easy for me to, 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 to present that message, I think, to the system. Um, I think the other, the other side of it, just briefly, is that I also made up my mind that when I got into the DFE, I was going to try and spend Monday, Monday to Wednesday in London doing the DFE element of the role and working with ministers and senior civil servants and yeah. uh, all the, the, the kind of stuff that obviously went at the heart of the job, which was fascinating and really interesting. But Thursdays and Fridays, I was going to be on the road. And so, I, you know, I'd set myself a target of how many, how many schools, how many trusts I wanted to go and see. I basically did it on, a, on a, an eight-week rolling cycle where every, at the end of every week, I was doing what I call a residency in a region. So I'd spend time with the RSC and their team talking about what they were doing and, and trying to you know, drive that agenda forward and support them. But I do round tables. I get people in to come and meet with me. I go and visit a school. I go and walk around. You know, I spend some time in the trust and I talk to people there. So I was always trying to deepen my understanding of what was really happening. Because I think one of the things about when you go into a, a job like an RSC or an NSC role, you can get very disconnected very quickly. Uh, and, and, and the temptation to be a civil servant for five days a week, had I chosen that path, would have actually taken me even further away from the system. And therefore, you've got no credibility to tell people what's happening because you're only seeing it secondhand. I wanted to be authentic about what I was seeing so that when I was describing something, I knew it, I knew it stacked up. I knew I'd seen it. I knew it was evidence-based. Yeah. And so I think that you know, for that period of time, that was it was a great opportunity. And, and when you were talking, I can definitely see how the likes of me and other leaders across the country when you're talking around that, that common language of um, school improvement. And we'll talk about your trajectory model in a bit if we can, because yeah. I found that really fascinating. So I can understand why everyone, we would appreciate that. And I can also understand why your regional schools commissioners would also appreciate that because they are inherently educationalists. How did the DFE internally respond to your discussions around the fact that actually school improvement 
isn't as rapid as many people think it is and that to do it well you've got to go a little bit slower at times what, what was the, how did they feel about that yeah um on the whole it was okay i mean funnily enough you and, and maybe this will be the surprising answer the the, the 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 people in the ministerial team so there was nikki morgan and justine greening um for most of my time there and damien hines towards the end of my time there yeah. i think they bought into that i thought they, they were they, they understood that i think that i had a bigger challenge sometimes with the press office yeah. because clearly there, there, there were things that i was saying there which which slightly contradicted the policy statement but um but that's fine. You know, I, I, as, I, as I frequently say, look, if you're going to appoint someone from my background into this role, you're going to have to flex a little bit because, you know, I've not been in the civil service for 30 years and I, and I, and I that's not my makeup. Um, and and actually what they realised over time was that I was, an, I was an asset because I was talking about the challenges of school improvement and I was, and I was recognising and stating very clearly that there were some schools in the sector that were failing really badly, which, which, which clearly was the driver for government policy to improve them. So, so that was okay. I think, the, I think the bit that really helped me was um, I was able to structure the academy's uh, unit, if you like, in the DfE so that it became one team. It wasn't separated around different elements of the DfE. It was in one place. And then I was able to appoint um, people that could work with me who were really experienced and talented civil servants who could who could actually do a lot of the finessing around the policy and a lot of the comms bit for me, leaving me free to do the bit that, that I felt I was good at that, that they couldn't do. Yeah. So, like, you know, it's... it's uh, I can, I've likened it in this way in the past. You know, when you go into a school and, you, and you're looking to build a new leadership team, you're looking to find people who are different to yourself, who've got different skills and experiences. And, and I just I just took that to a, a slightly bigger level at the DFE and, and made sure that we had people that um, that could partly have my back, if I'm honest, you know, that, 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 that knew what I was trying to do and what I was trying to to, to, to say, but also that people would 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 lead the, the, the policy system, if you like, as, as effectively as possible. And so that we were... You know, when we talked about rebrokering academies, you know, I was I was very keen that we that we move more to a model of a tariff system. So, you know, unless you know, in, in some cases there were schools that were just so incredibly broken, you had to you had to look very differently at what the the funding envelope might be for those. But generally speaking, schools that were just just had been poorly led, but with the right trust, would improve very quickly. I wanted there to be a consistency, so that if if a trust in I don't know in Northumberland, for example, took on a school that was very similar to a school in Southampton. You wouldn't suddenly have a school in Southampton getting a much bigger funding envelope. I wanted it to be fair and, and, and comparative, and so those kind of things, basic principles about how you how you do things, which which you bring in from the sector into the, into that kind of a role. I thought I, I think I had some success with, and I, and I think it, and I think it changed the shape of how people thought about things. And and then as part of that, you then went on to. There's so many questions I've got based on what we just said. So, the you you built your trajectory model yeah and you were in my view so you were a visionary in terms of going around and because as you said you had your road shows you're out you know i saw you speaking a number of times uh and we, we all enjoyed hearing the message that you were that you were peddling because we felt that it was one of our own stood at the front who had ambition and was rigorous and you always came across that way you didn't come across as though you were going to compromise on your standards, but you also had a deep understanding. It's interesting since you left there because they haven't gone to, you know, um, for the current National Schools Commissioner is an incumbent civil servant again. So they haven't gone for another educationist, have they? It seems that after you left, the role has 
Well, it's, it's kind of taken on a different dimension again, hasn't it? Well, the, the commissioner rule has changed. It, it's, it, it doesn't look the same as it did in 2014. And in 2014, it was absolutely right. And, and, and I'd argue quite brave of the department to, to actively seek people that had, had backgrounds like ours to come into those roles. And I, and I think, without going through the whole list now, I, if I remember rightly, the only person who hadn't had school experience when we started in 2014 was, was Dominic, who did come from another role in the DFE. Whereas now it's flipped right the way around. And, and, I, and I think I'm right in saying in terms of school leadership experience at, at, at Headship or, or beyond, you're talking about Vicky Beer in, in, in the Northwest and, and Andrew Warren in the West Midlands are the only ones I think that have got that experience. And so, so the emphasis has changed a little bit. And, and that probably goes hand in hand with the fact that the RSC role is now much broader. Um, uh, the the regionalisation of the, of the thinking has gone deeper. So, so they, the, I think the, the recruitment of, um, of civil servants into those roles has kind of defaulted back to where we would have been in the past, I think. Um, also, I, I'd have to say that even having said that, there, there are three of the RSEs who came through the RSE teams. They were deputy directors um, uh, in, the, in the northeast, in, um, in northwest London, south central, and the southwest as well, of course, where, where those three RSEs are really, really strong. Um, of course, Kate Dethridge has also been ahead, so there's three there, actually not two. So I, I, I can see how, how, how it's morphed into that. But I, I, I think, I think there's been a, there's a challenge now about how does the sector understand the direction of travel that the DFE are on when you've got people who, largely speaking, haven't haven't had that experience. Now, I'm not saying that you you have to have it because I think that would be that would be naive. But having experience in that team of people who know what it's like to turn schools around and the challenges still feels pretty key to me if part of the RSC remit is to challenge failure and work out where failing schools are going to end up. Yeah, I think that, I think that it's the communication side of things. I mean, I've got to say, you know, we have Andrew Warren here and since Andrew Warren has come in, into post, I've only got really positive experience of him. You know, he, he does really want to communicate and listen. Um, so I think he's doing a, a really, really good and effective job. But it seems with you that the DFE went down a path of um, really communicating with education and it became a two-way process and we stepped down that path. And then you were there from the 1st of February 2016 to 31st of August 2018. And I honestly think that, that, that you'd done the groundwork and an even braver thing then would have been if they would have then brought someone in to build upon the work that you'd done and carry that message because I think what we're seeing at the moment with, with, with the department, and I have a lot of sympathy for them, is that, you know, you've said to me before, there's some really good people in the Department for Education, some people with really good moral values. The problem is, is that they are beholden to the powers that be above. And so what, we, what we've started to see, especially with COVID, is that sometimes policies change and then the DfE have to enact the policy. And because it comes out last minute, school leaders point the finger at the DfE and blame the DfE. Hmm. I think that, I don't know if that would have been different if you were there still as National Schools Commissioner. Uh, you I know, I, I, I've reflected on that, Steve, a few times. I, I'm, I'm not sure that it would have been. I think, I think this period of time would have been very difficult because I think the, the and, and it's one of those, I, I mean, you alluded to it. I think it's one of those things that, that I, I, I get quite defensive about it sometimes when I, when I hear people talk negatively about the DFE as a, as a, as a thing because yeah. I know that I know the people working there are doing their damnedest to make this work 
Um, yeah. But the, but I I don't think you can you can separate out the role that a, that a government department like the DFE uh, plays in the broader scheme of thing things where, where where Downing Street and the Prime Minister's office are dictating so much about the direction of travel at the moment. So so the DFE uh, my my perception is I'm I'm pretty sure the reality is probably the same is that the DFE is not not 100% driving this at the moment because understandably i suppose what the prime minister is trying to do is to join up a lot of complicated dots and the dfe is one of those dots and it's one of the reasons why i think there have been some last minute changes and some last minute guidance um you know there there have obviously been some areas that the dfe will reflect on i'm sure in the future and say you know what well, we could have done x y z better but i i i think the rscs um have been so head down trying to make sure that things get settled in their regions and, and and that schools have got what they need and they've got the right messages, that there's not been time to lift your head up above the parapet really and talk about about anything other than that. And yeah. and, and arguably, Steve, if if that had, if I'd still been in the role, that may not have been my skill set, to be honest. So the, the, the notion of how how the RSEs play into the kind of cabinet office discussions and number ten discussions, all of the all of the stuff about how COVID is is being um, responded to educationally, actually, I, I would have still been wanting to talk about school improvement and arguably maybe that that Dominic is is is, is a better experienced person to lead that at the moment than I would have been. So I think we're just a product of our times. In 2014, massive increase in the number of academies, more and more multi academy trusts being approved. Um, they wanted somebody who understood what good, bad, and indifferent looked like. And for me, I think I was the right person for that. The world has moved on and changed a bit, and it could hardly be that actually I, I wouldn't have had the same success in the current period as I had in the, in, in, in the time I was there. Yeah, I suppose I, I suppose we'll uh, I suppose we'll never know. But what I, what I pers- my personal view is that in this period at this moment in time where the landscape has changed. There's never been a greater need for um, national communication, and um, and sometimes I think just trying to unite the system a little bit more, and giving everyone a sense of belonging, I yeah. think that that counts for so much, and um, I think that's been lost nationally. Uh, you know, I can only speak for the West Midlands regional regional team you know they have been in touch regularly to check that we're all doing okay so you know they've been very supportive nationally it feels a little bit different but um but like you say it's easy to sit there and say that when actually we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're fight people are fighting fires on all fronts you know we've yeah. got to we've got to be kind to everyone haven't we because ultimately we're in uncharted territory so uh, can we just go back a little bit before we move on from the National Schools Commissioner, Pat? Can we go back to your um, your trajectory model? Now, for people who haven't seen this, um, can you just describe it and tell us about what sparked your thinking? Because it generally plots um, different school trajectory for improvement, school improvement, and how that looks. And I'm just interested to know about the thought process that you came up with the idea of when you were going to start doing that and how you built it because yeah. it's proved to be really, really effective. So the roots of it, I think, were in uh, what I perceive to be a linear understanding of school improvement, which was basically um, turn a school into an academy, put it into a good trust, give it a slug of money and it'll get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, can you get it better in about six months' time, please? Um, and I And I just found that... I just found that a very difficult message to understand. Um, 
because it's far more complex than that, and you know, as, as you'll know. So, so, so there are schools that, that drop from outstanding and good to RI and special measures. They, they can do it in one inspection, and that could be down to a safeguarding floor, for example. You've got other schools where they've gone from requiring improvement back up to good very quickly because actually the school was already getting better before it was inspected. So it was almost a good school when it when it was given an RI judgment. So it's much more subtle than than simply just just going on a, on a binary conversation from weak to weak to strong. So I, I started thinking about uh, the, the different experiences I'd had first of all, um, sort of in, in Cabot particularly, about about the challenges of that, and you know the the challenge of leading Cabot John Cabot Academy from being an outstanding school and keeping it outstanding and trying to keep it strong was a very different leadership challenge to taking on Bristol Brunel Academy and Bristol Metropolitan Academy that were in really difficult situations and getting them to good. And and I don't think there's one one leadership route for, for both that fits both of those scenarios. So I knew I knew from my own experience that if I'd sat down and looked at Cabot when I left it with 14 or 15 schools, each of those schools needed something different. There was no there was no sense in my view that I could create one strategy that would have, would have met the needs of all of those different schools, the primaries and the secondaries at the time. So, so that was the first, that was a starting point for it. And then um, I, I, the second phase was I took uh, a group of, a couple of the RSCs, a couple of people out of their offices and a couple of um, uh, Matt CEOs who I'd worked with um, in the past. And we, we, we did a day together, um, no particular agenda, but we, we started sketching what that would look like literally on a piece of paper with some felt pens. Uh, and I always regret I didn't, I didn't continue to use the felt pen version and not just the, the neat PowerPoint version that, that we came up with later. And, yeah. and, and we, we did two things. We had, we had on the, on the graph, we had time along the bottom, which was deliberately set up to say, you know, there's no numbers on this. Cause I, I, my whole, my whole rationale was, I think you can see the green shoots of improvements in six to 12 months. But if you're asking me, will this school never go back to chaos? You've, you've got to give this school three to five years to be to be absolutely clear that that's going to be the case. Yeah. And on the vertical axis was kind of what I described as the four phases of the journey, which was from um, this phase one was about stabilize and how do you, how do you stabilize a chaotic school? And, and again, that's my argument, I suppose, about what I could bring into the NSC role, which is I knew what that was like. I'd had that experience and I, and I knew how, on one hand, how exciting that can be, but also how how difficult it can be and how challenging it can be. The second phase was um, repair, so it's it's no longer chaotic, but it's not, but now you've stabilised the school, you can begin to repair it, and on the back of repairing it, you can improve it, and on the back of improving it, you can sustain it. and And we just talked about the kind of journeys that there would be, and so there were eight different possible uh, trajectories. There's probably more than that, but I thought there were eight fairly typical ones. But the two that I settled on, which which I thought f- described what the vast majority of schools were telling me and what I was seeing, um, were, were, were journeys where a, a school that had been brokered into a mat um, at the end of year one actually saw results that were worse than when they came into the trust. Um, which I wasn't entirely, I wasn't completely surprised about that at all, because in some cases, what people like you would have done is you've gone in and you challenged the behaviour that you saw from children, but you've also challenged the behaviour from some of the adults as well. And and the combination of doing those two things means that you're completely trying to reculture the school. And that does take time. And, you know, you can't have multiple conversations in six weeks. You've got to, you've got to hear, as a member of staff, you've got to hear the expectations conversation over and over again. But what those schools did was that by the time they got to the end of year three, the results were catching up with a strategy. 
Yeah. And by the time they got to year four and year five, the results were unrecognisable. Um, and in some cases, they they had a really positive Ofsted judgment as well, good or outstanding, which which, I, which I'm which I'm less interested in. I'm more interested in the sustainability of that trust. And so with the RSCs, I I wanted them to think about the trajectory from the perspective of if you're going to broker another special measure school into this trust, what's the track record that that trust has got of improving schools over that period of time? Because by the time we got to 2016-17, some of those trusts had been around for well, nearly 10 years. And some of them had really successful track records. They weren't always the famous ones, but they had really successful track records. And some of the, the, the better known ones, it was a bit mixed, to be honest. And yet the default was often to go to big trusts because we thought they'd have the capacity. And what I what I thought the challenge was, was we needed to grow some of our really strong and potentially very successful smaller trusts Um as well as looking at the larger trusts and making sure that they they could help us when we needed to. So it was trying to address a number of issues, I suppose. But when I drew the final diagram, which is in the book, and, and people would have seen our PowerPoint slides, the feedback was that almost every trust leader who used it could work out which school I was talking about in their trust. I obviously wasn't talking about their schools, but they but they could translate it onto yeah. that. And they found it particularly useful because they could then go and have a conversation with their board of trustees about school improvement in a really specific granular way. Um, and 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 in reality say, look, what we've got to do is we've got to put more resource into this school because it's here on the trajectory. Whereas this school is 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 in is in the improved phase, doing really well. For a couple of years, we can afford to let them get on with it while we put our energy in here. And so when when schools were coming, sorry, when trusts were coming forward saying we've here's our growth strategy, we want to have another five schools in 18 months' time, the RSC response, and my response was to tell me, tell me why you think you can do this then. Tell me why you think you could take three RI schools and, and how would you approach it? Um, and, and that was a better conversation, bluntly, than, than, than simply saying, you know, we've got a really successful back office, yeah. which, which always left me a bit cold, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, you know, we use that. We use your model. and We still use it now when we're, when we're working with uh, our trustees and when we're looking at our schools. So I think this model stands the, the test of time. And it, I think it, what the beauty of your model is, one, it was on one side of A4, which... Yeah. Um, for any any sort of strategy, I think is always a massive achievement. And yeah. we are, you know, we both know that the hardest thing with any um, strategy is so incredibly difficult to get it to one side of A4, isn't it? You know, because um, trying to make it easily understood. And I think that's the beauty. Anyone can pick it up. And if you've worked in leadership in school, you look at it and straight away, it just makes sense. That's great to hear. Yeah. So. Uh, do you think the um, DFE is still using that model? I mean, I've not heard it since you presented it. We still use it, but I haven't heard it referenced. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think they do. Um, I'm, I'm, I certainly haven't heard that they have. Um, I mean, I, I, I hear it being used a lot in my ambition institute work um, and on the MBA with, with guys like yourself. So I'm, I am really pleased the the team that I was working with created a tool that people are still using, which is now roughly three three and a half years after we created it, and you know I, I think that's quite interesting in itself. I I, I was I was determined that I was going to get onto the side of A four, 
I was I was also really committed to trying to do it graphically, not in words, because that's sometimes easier when you're busy to understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But I but the number of trusts um, that I've worked with um, in the last couple of years since I left the DFE who who have now who've even sent me the PowerPoint back with school names written on it, showing showing us exactly how they're using it. It's just really gratifying, you know that. Yeah. You know, it's it's not about it. I, I I don't need that that feedback, but I, but it's lovely to get it and. Um, and I tried to bring that level of pragmatism into the book, you know, um, because I, I, what I felt there was was a, was a lack of there was a lack of really practical guidance on what effective trusts were doing well, and, and it wasn't about best practice as such because I'm, I'm always dubious about that phrase. But I'd seen so much practice from my own experience of leading a trust and from the four years in the in the DFE that um, what I wanted to try to do was to, to was to litter every page in that book with examples, some of which wouldn't be appropriate for people, but but would make people think. And uh, and, and and we need more of that in the sector. And if it's not going to come from the DFE, and it probably won't for, for, the, for the foreseeable future, then people like yourself and others have got to codify what they've done and, and share it around the system. And if I can lead some of that in the work that I do now, that, that'll be great. Yeah, and for those people that haven't um, haven't seen this or or heard of your book, it's leading academy trusts why some fail but most don't, and you can pretty much get it from any good bookstore, can't you? Including Amazon, Amazon and John Cat, <laughs> Amazon and John Cat. Yeah. So um, so moving on, can we just talk a little bit around what you think makes great leadership today? Yeah. So specifically in today's climate. And where you see leadership going over the next five years, because, you know, I think that we would be interested to hear that because it's definitely evolved, hasn't it? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this, Steve, because um, it's come up in a number of interviews I've done recently. And I'm thinking hard about it for some of the work I'm doing, um, at, you know, with ambition with the MBA. Um, so I think it's changing. I think that's the first thing to say. I, I think the... I think the need to make sure that we are we are really modelling the quality of leadership to people that will come along behind us is really important. So I think I'm thinking I'm thinking hard at the moment about succession planning, um, talent management, um, and 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 what the next cadre of leaders that come through and take over from us in the next 10, 15 years will need to be good at. And I and I'm, I I don't know if this is I, I I wouldn't want to say this this is the definitive answer to your question but i i think there are four areas that that really interest me as part of the answer to your question about what will leadership look like going forward um and i think and i and i've done them around what i call the four c's yeah. uh so i just I, I won't i won't bore listeners with with huge amount of detail but i'll just say what i think i mean by it and, and but i but this is evolving i'm, I'm not sure I've, I've got this this quite right yet but, but i think it's something like this so the first quality that leaders need i think the first c is around communication so we need to build a leadership uh, a leadership structure, I think, that includes really good communication. And I see communication through the following lens, really. One is the communication of what are we trying to do here? Um, so, and I, and I don't just mean about vision, although vision is really important and vision statements are really important. But I mean, what are we trying to do here? What difference are we trying to make? What will the footprint look like that we leave when we move on? So what? What? how do we tell people um, in our communities what it is we're trying to do but at the other end of the spectrum is I think leaders have got to be really good at giving feedback to people and helping people make sense of where they fit so so when we talk about that vision and we talk about the direction of travel we're on everybody that we employ needs to know their part of the journey uh, and what their contribution is to it so my first is communication 
The second C is about collaboration. Um, uh, if I think about when I started as a head in 1997, you know, collaboration just just was non-existent. You know, I was we were all schools in my experience were, were islands. We we very rarely got together. There was a, in Gloucestershire, I was there was a, there was a termly secondary heads association meeting, which was bluntly a bit of a whinge fest. Um, and, and and as a young head, uh, having you know in a in a in a, in a headship, arguably earlier than I probably deserved to get, but I was I was in it. I needed more than that. I need I needed a much more strategic um, collaborative network to be part of. So thinking about how we how we get leaders to develop and participate in collaborative networks and learn from each other is a really important part of that. That's the second C. The third C um, is community. Uh, and, and I see community in in th- in three three circles, I suppose. First circle, um, which is a really important one, is the, the community of the school. So the people who you employ. So for me, that's about talent management and how we develop our workforce to be the best version it can be. The second circle is the community that surrounds the school, um, the, the people, the families, the neighbourhoods, but the businesses and the other public sector organisations that play in that space. And then the third element of community is everybody else. And so how do we, how, how, how does one head in one part of the country who's, who's come up with a really genius idea to solve a particular problem tell everybody else in the sector about it um, and, and I think we need leaders that want to be um, open and outward facing and willing to share um, their successes and their failures mm-hmm. and then the fourth C is continuity which is so I, I'm a secondary specialist I was, I was trained to teach secondary music I've, I've mainly taught I've, I've led secondary schools but through becoming a MAT CEO and through the other work that we talked about today I've started to develop very late in my career a passion and an understanding for primary education from early years. And I think one of the things we need to develop amongst our leaders is an understanding of what early years foundation stage looks like all the way through to post-16 and and higher education. So, yeah, okay, I choose to become a secondary head of department or a secondary teacher or a secondary head teacher. I choose to do that. But I understand what's gone before it and I understand what's come after it. Whereas when when I started out as a head, my 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 naivety of what was happening in primary is shocking. Um, yet it was it would have enhanced my leadership if I if I'd known more about primary and I'm sure primary heads more about secondary. So that continuity of learning and that continuity of curriculum flow feels to me if I was you know, if I was redesigning a leadership program, I, I'd want to include that in it as well. So I think it's those four C's: communication, collaboration, community, and continuity probably feels like it's in those spaces that we should be designing future leadership development. Yeah, and I think I think that you you make a really great point around the whole of education because I'm someone who's only ever worked in primary education. It's only through networking uh, as part of um, Matt CEO meetings. Uh, I've never... I work with a lady called Helen Quinn, who's in Coventry. She she runs um, a, a Mac and also Peter Thomas and Future yeah, Trust. Peter. And also chatting through with Ben Parnell, who we talked about before we started pressing record, who we know is super talented. It's only through chatting with people like that, that it's opened my eyes to understanding even some of the lingo around secondary education. And I think you're absolutely right. It, it's really short-sighted of, of our system that we do get pigeonholed into one age range and then there's not that much desire to go out and learn about the other age ranges there. And I think that as we bring leaders through, as we bring educationists through, 
one that actually exposes everyone to understand the full system and put some some clear underpinning in place would be really beneficial. And it would stop a lot of the, um, I'm going to say lack of trust, isn't it? Because sometimes primaries look up to secondaries and moan, and sometimes yeah. secondaries look down to primaries and moan, and sometimes junior schools look down to infants and moan. Yeah. You, know, you have a bit of a um, finger pointing going on across the system. And I think that's down to generally people's um, naivety and also maybe feeling a bit of a threat because they don't actually understand what either goes before. Stevie, you think about what's happened in primary in the last four or five years in terms of the the way that the curriculum has developed and the um, and the way that the SATs have changed because of the because of that curriculum. Yeah. You know, at the very worst end of the spectrum, you you will have secondary schools potentially still teaching in year seven what these kids did in year three and year four. Yeah. And and that and that for me is the the biggest threat to the continuity because because children children are smart enough to know they've done that work before and they're smart enough to realise that when they go up to secondary that they're being understretched and yeah. so I I think you know one of the one of the most powerful bits for me so in in the Cabot Learning Federation we had um, we educated kids from four to nineteen and uh, I, I really remember this we 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 had a we had a a trust conference uh, at the University of the West of England so gosh I don't know. 1,200 people in the room, something like that, all the people that we employed. And I was talking about um, the fact that we'd, we'd made progress with our A-level outcomes. And before I talked about A-levels and gave the A-level teachers a pat on the back, I got the reception teachers in the room to stand up and get a clap, simply to make the point that if they hadn't done their job, we couldn't have got them A-level results 13 years later. We just wouldn't have been able to have done it. And, of course, those reception teachers were not there when they when, when the A-level kids were four years old. But the point being made that, actually, we can't celebrate A-level and GCSE success unless we acknowledge that the kids actually had a pretty good foundation in primary before they came up. And, and I think that was – sometimes you need those kind of symbolic moments just to really drive that point home. And I, and I, and I, and I think the – you know, one of the really untapped potential – exciting bits of the education sector at the moment is is we've got lots of trusts who are who are now working together with each other who really do truly understand the journey from preschool to pre-university and the more that we can think about that continuity of experience the better the education sector will be yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more so we're gonna i'm gonna delve into you a little bit more if we can and, and, and okay. then a bit more about you in a second can you just give us a couple of examples though um over the past few years where you've seen seen something that's really wowed you um you know from certain leaders or the way a trust is operating or any school something yeah. that stood out for you yeah so so this is easy for me um there, there, there are multiple examples of of successful turnaround models um that interest me but i but the one i think i'll share with you is one goes back to my rsc southwest days yeah. um so probably one of the most challenging schools, that's probably arguably in the country actually, but certainly in the Southwest, was a school called St. Oldham's Academy. And St. Oldham's Academy was in Poole, uh, in Dorset. Um, and I'm, I'm not remembering this that clearly, but if I tell you that the five A to C's in English and maths in the summer of 2016, I think were single digits, or if, or if they weren't single digits, they were barely above 10. You get, you get a sense of the scale. Um, and, it, and it was... It was a school that was really, really badly broken. But I, rem- I'd, in the early 1990s, I'd been music advisor in Dorset, uh, and I remembered the school on that site then. And and what what was obvious was that in the period between 1990s and 2014, the school had 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 been through um, three 
three changes, three changes of name, three new buildings. You know, how many rebrands can you can you can you actually do before people realise that's not the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, Ofsted came into the school, um, placed it into special measures, quite understandably and and, and rightly so. Um, and we it was it was the it was two it was two weeks before the October half term in 2016. And uh, the, the problem that we had was that basically the leadership team in the school um, largely all went sick. So, so I did what, what, what you and others like us would have done was I, I got together a team of people, a couple of people from Cabot and a couple of other people, one from the head teacher board. Uh, and there were five of us and we went down and we ran the school for a week. So, so the RSC went down and ran the school with these five people for a week. I did it from Monday to Wednesday um, and the other guys did it uh, for the whole week. Um, um, and one of the one of the guys who came down with this was a guy called Brian Hooper, and Brian was on the head teacher board. And Brian ran a trust in Bournemouth and Pool, which was largely based around uh, special schools and, and AP provision. Um, and I just thought he was his trust was utterly brilliant uh, with some really challenging and, and vulnerable kids. And to cut a long story short, um, within about within a month, we'd brokered the school into his trust. This would the, the school had another complexity, which was it had been rebuilt, and it was it was in the era when architects suddenly thought they could get design awards for having schools with no walls in, and right. and this secondary school was basically like three aircraft hangars, and it was mayhem. The noise was um, unreal. You couldn't, you know, I'd, I'd have fight whoever whoever the best teacher in the world is, they'd have failed in that school. So so we we very quickly got some walls up. So did some very pragmatic around that. Um, and, and the school went from being an abject failure within about 18 months to being uh, judged to be good with some, with some lovely comments and lovely um, uh, descriptions of what had happened in there. And it was, a, it was a really good reminder to me about how if you get a group of people who are really focused upon getting the thing stabilised, starting to repair it, in Brian's case, bringing some of his experience from special schools and AP was very helpful, particularly around behaviour management. Um, and then we broke some support from a teaching school um, just over the border in Hampshire, uh, who who were incredibly generous with their time and actually seconded a, a, a deputy head to come in and be the acting head um, until we until the trust uh, recruited uh, internally the, the, the permanent head. And the permanent head has now gone on to be the CEO of the trust. So it's a great story in terms of turning it around. And and it's now an oversubscribed school. Its results are, are really a successful. Progress 8 is off the scale. It For me, it's the ultimate example of a turnaround. But, but, but the point is, that journey went from October 2016 to where we are now in 2021, which is nearly five years. Mm-hmm. And and it's not as if that journey has been seamless. There have always been challenges on that way through. But that school is unrecognisable for that community. And, and I, as confident as I could ever be, it will never go back to where it was before. So that, for me, is the, is the example of the of the journey that, that you can do with really outstanding school leadership rooted in school improvement, um, that you can take schools from that level of failure to something that, that's now really strong and successful. And the I think the other thing that can there is, you know, Obviously, I mean Brian Hooper. I'm going to go and um, check him out after this, and uh, uh, you know try and make a connection. But aside from that, the amount of people that were altruistic in terms of giving their time to get that school um, improved. I mean, if you compare that to the old system where the school sort of fails and they're in, uh, you know, a um, local authority, you compare that to, to everything that had to were into action to to get the school to where it is now. 
it's, it is a pretty impressive support framework, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 I, you know, I I look back really fondly. I mean, that week was a tough week, the one the week in October. But you know, I I literally just called upon a few a few people that I that I knew really well. Arguably, a couple of them were mates, and I said, "Look, I've got a problem here, which I can't solve on my own. Do you, do you fancy coming and have a go at this and give me, you know, just give me a hand with it?" And yeah. and we went into the, we went down, and they started working in the school. The, the kids had no idea who they were. You know, the, the kids were, were used to something very, very different. But, but you know, the staff were, were, were they were desperate. They, were, they needed help because the staff were going to school every day and everybody else was dropping out. And so, you know, I, I, th- th- those people that did that for that week, whether they were there the whole week or just part of the week. But I, but I worked on the basis of if I could get five people and I could always guarantee for Monday, we, 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 we very quickly put an inset day on the Friday just to help us out a little bit. But Monday to Thursday, we said, look, of these five, we need three of us in the building every day. Um, and, and let's use it as a really intelligent piece of due diligence. Let's really work out what's wrong here so that we can turn this around very quickly. I then went, rattled a few cages in the DFE and the SFA to get some something moved quickly. And over the half-term period, we got some walls up. And then in the, in the head teacher board meeting, immediately after half-term, we, we rebrokered the school uh, into there, into the new trust. And um, and so I, I, I would argue, and I, and I would say this, wouldn't I, that if I'd been a, if I hadn't had my school experience background, I would have taken a much more process-driven model to that, and it would have taken six months. But yeah. the fact that I was able to see, look, this this school is going to implode. I mean, and literally, kids are going to be out on the streets if we're not careful. Realizing what the risk of that was, we did something remarkable in about three weeks. And and I, and I you know, I that's why for me there is value in having people from the sector going into those kind of roles in the DFE. Yeah, absolutely. Great example. Thank you for that. So moving on to a little bit more about about you, because obviously we know all about um, we know all about your your educational um, side of things. I think in part of this podcast is understanding a little bit about the person behind that and what 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 drives them, uh, and and your maker, etc. So thinking back to throughout your career. If you could give us one or a few people that have had the biggest influence on your career, can you just talk about that with us? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great question. And, I, and I'm, I'm not hesitating because I can't think who it would be. I know exactly who I want to ask, about it, but I want to put it into sequence. So I suppose, I think it's, it's quite hard for me to to talk about that without referencing my upbringing as well a little bit. So so uh, so one of the people that had a massive influence on, on me would have been my dad. Yeah. So my dad was a professional musician. Um, that's kind of how I got into music. You know, he he he, he taught me the piano when I was a, when I was a little kid, um, and so I, I became a music teacher because of his, his influence. But also, I was passionate about sport growing up. Played played a lot of sport, um, and you know, he he drove me on weekends round round you know from the length and breadth of South Wales to football pitches to cricket pitches and and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had that aspect of my upbringing which I think has informed and influenced me as an adult if he hadn't done that so my dad would be one um I think the sec- there, there are two heads I work for who who absolutely left a, an impression upon me um in in the late 1980s I was head of creative arts at a school in Reading yeah. And, uh, and there's a guy there called Ray Hadfield and Ray, Ray uh, sadly is not with us anymore, but Ray was the head there. Um, he was a late, he'd been a labor counselor in Liverpool. He was, he was as tough as it gets. Um, and, and whilst Reading is not as of itself, a particularly tough uh, area, the school was quite a tough one. Um, and he was a perfect fit for that. But 
what I got from him was, you know, he his presence in that school was everywhere. It was remarkable that, you know, he people knew what he wanted. Um, they, they knew what he'd be thinking. Um, his ability to talk kids down from being really cross and upset was was remarkable. And I I had never seen that before. And I and that was that was amazing. And then the other head that I worked for was in uh was in Christchurch in Dorset, where I was um after my days as being a music advisor, I went back in as a head of creative arts into that school and, and a senior teacher, as it was called in those days. And Brian Driver, uh, Brian was the head of that school. And and what he showed me was that you could be passionate about teaching and curriculum and still be ahead. Most of the heads I'd worked for were, were very much about management and administration. He was absolutely rooted in in classrooms and teaching. And and I loved all of that. And um, And he inspired me to do that. And then I suppose more recently, because I'd like to think I'm still being influenced, uh, I became a trustee at Centrepoint um, three years ago, just before I left the DFE. Um, and the CEO of Centrepoint is a guy called Shay Abakin, uh, who's a remarkable guy. Um, and education has had it tough in the last 12 months, but social care and homelessness is, is off the scale, really, in terms of the challenge. Yeah, he leads that organisation um, with humility, with compassion, but with a with a really steeliness that to get the best possible deal in place for the most vulnerable kids, um, and and I he's he's an inspiration to me as well because I, I'm seeing a working very closely with a CEO who has a lot of the characteristics that you and I might have, but is applying them into a different context, which is why I I, I absolutely get why I think it's so important that school leaders get the opportunity to hear from leaders in other situations, in other contexts, other professions. I think it's very valuable and really important. Yeah, he sounds like a. Uh, he sounds like a great guy. So, has he been? Was he involved in? Has he worked in schools before? Anything like what? What's his background? No, no, not at all. No, he's um, he's actually been at Centrepoint for about twenty years. He was the finance director before before he became the CEO. So, his whole background is in um, charity work and, and and social sector work, social care sector work. So, uh, a really interesting guy. Um, really interesting guy um, who's. Who's just got that lovely balance of of as I said humility and compassion, but with a real steel edge to get stuff done and and, and things changed, which which I think is great. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for for, for sharing that. Now a little bit on to um, trying to understand when you've had um, your back to the wall moment, because I think whenever whenever we we interview or we see as leaders um, someone in your position who's who's been national schools commissioner we put we put you guys on a pedestal and i think it's easy to forget that you know you are human and as a result you've had you've had vulnerabilities and you've to get to that point there's been probably not just a lot of ups but a lot of downs as well and i think that that point of learning with your back to the wall is so vital so can you just tell us a little bit about the time you've had to overcome that yeah, so so I, like everybody, I, I'm sure I've had my fair share of those. I mean, interestingly enough, I'm not going to put kind of dodgy exam results and and, and funny offset inspections into that because I don't see that as being adversity. I, I just I just think that's a product of a system that's just a little bit flawed sometimes. Yeah. But undoubtedly, you know, when that's happened, and, I, and I've certainly had my fair share of exam results I wasn't happy with, and I've certainly had a couple of rogue inspections that drove me mad. But you get over that. I, I suppose I'm going to give you two examples, Steve. I think one one is a personal one and one is a more generic one, but I think it would be interesting just to reflect on it. So, so I suppose one of them was in, in 2009, when I, when I was three years into the math, my, my, I lost my sister to cancer. Um, 
and and I was I was flat out in work, really really busy trying to get the mat off the ground and set up, and then I had this to deal with as well. And and I don't know whether how many people listening will have had that experience, but you know you're, you're processing your own grief, but you're also looking out for your parents and looking out for your siblings. And and what I what I what I didn't do was to take some time, and I just I just worked harder and harder. And try to cover off both aspects of the life that I was leading, one one for my family and one for for, for my professional life. Um, and and yeah, I, I got some stuff done, um, and 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 I I moved the map forward remarkably in that period of time. But about six to eight months later, it really hit me, um, and I think it hit me in a way that that was really unsurprising for me sorry surprising for me because i i'm always i've usually been pretty resilient but the way the way it manifested for me was a real a real a real sense of you know what what's this all about then why am i doing this you know why have i got my priorities wrong here um and i I, the the chair of the trust at the time was a guy called ron ritchie who was just a brilliant guy and he saw he saw this before i saw it um and i'd gone back in september so six months after after this had happened um and I, I just wasn't on it. I, I knew I wasn't. I, I was forgetting things. I, I was I was turning up late for things. I was a bit sloppy in board meetings. I, I wasn't I wasn't as driven as I had been. And and he forced me to take two weeks off. Um, and uh, and I wouldn't have done it. And I and I and I, and I, and I, and I argued with him. I, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I think I might even said, you know, are you are, are you putting me on gardening leave? And and he was really very quick to put me right on that but it was the right thing to do and 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 i suppose what i learned from that was and and, and i'm sharing that very personal story with people because at the age of i'm at you know in my 60s now i can look back on this but sometimes life and shit happens around us and and you can't divorce the fact that you're a leader from the fact that you're you know that you're a parent that you're a you're a sibling you know you're a son or daughter husband wife whatever And, and when those things happen you have to give yourself space to recover from it i think um and that, so that's why I'd share that one, I think, with you. The second example... Um, uh, before you go on to the second example, can I say thanks for sharing that because I think that's going to hit a note with so many people. And I think you really hit the nail on the head. Part of education, its strength, is that it cuts us to the core and we care deeply. It's ingrained. Yeah. Sometimes it's also part of its biggest weakness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we drive ourselves to destruction and at times like where you need to take time for yourself... People feel really bad and 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 don't stop. So I think that's such a powerful example that you've shared because you know ultimately what is life about? Well, exactly. And and I and I think I emerged from that period as a better leader because because yeah. I think I I understood myself better. I mean, thankfully, I never had to deal with something quite like that again. But um, although I, I, my my dad died a few years afterwards, but then my dad was in his eighties, my sister was in her thirties, so you know it wasn't the same thing. But but I I coped much better because I. I knew some of the triggers and I could anticipate them. So I'm only sharing it, not 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 for sympathy, but but there will be people listening to this who've either already been through this or the inevitable will happen and people will have those challenges. And and I guess one of the things that I, I, I believe very strongly is that if we're going to lead our organized organizations successfully to be healthy organizations, we have to take care of ourselves as well when adversity hits. Yeah, absolutely. The other example is... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit, bit brief with this one. So Kensington Aldridge Academy uh, in in London um, was uh, is situated at the base of the Grenfell Tower, right. and uh, people will know about the fire and the, the horrific aftermath of that. And uh, I went to the school um, 
the day that the, the, the fire happened overnight, I went to the school the next day with Justine Greening um, to, to, to visit. Um, and, and the tower was, the tower was still pretty much still on fire. The, the, and, 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 and it was just, it was horrible, just dreadful. But uh, we, we, we went and spent a couple of hours with David Benson, the principal and his leadership team. Uh, who are now situated in, around the corner in an office block away from the school because the school wasn't safe to be in. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen anything that would tick the adversity box more than, than, than that. But the, the way that those guys um, planned and prepared for what was going to happen to get the school up and running quickly, where were they going to locate the school, where to find a new site for them um, temporarily. The fact that, that you know, on the, on the morning of the fire... So this is eight o'clock in the morning. The fire broke out something like 10 o'clock at night, I think, or, or the early hours of the morning. Um, there were kids going into school to do their maths at AS level. You know, they, they, they lived in the tower block and had been evacuated and then came into school to do the exam. Yeah. And, and just seeing firsthand how people cope with that was just inspiring. And, uh, yeah, I share that story a lot. Yeah. Wow. What a team. You know, um, I think what's really come out from speaking to you today and from these past few examples is as part of this leadership series, all I ever want to hear from leaders is that they are, that they're open, transparent, and they've got an honesty and an integrity about them. You know, we always say, uh, or say to my team, I challenge myself on it, which is, um, can you look yourself in the mirror and know that you did the right thing with the information you provided because the thing is easy to look back with hindsight and pick holes in what you did isn't it yeah but with that information at time and do you put kids first and if you can tick those boxes then you um then no matter what happens you can stand up and know that you were counted and i think that this interview today has really shown me um i think it's been great because you know i've heard you speak on professional levels so much so I really admire the fact that you've been so um, open and honest about your time in the DFE. And um, I think people are going to really uh, enjoy listening to the insight that you've given there. But I think those past, those two examples you've given are really powerful. And, um, you know, thanks for being so open and, and honest with that. It's, um, I think it's just great to hear and great to hear a leader talking like that. Thanks, Steve. Well, I've, I've enjoyed working with you and sharing those experiences with you. And I hope people enjoy listening to the conversation we've had. Well, thanks for joining us on this podcast today, and we really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Sir David Carter. We often refer to people in life as legends, and sometimes it's valid and sometimes it's not. And I think, though, with Sir David, he is an absolute legend in my view. I mean, his openness and transparency about the DFE, I think, was was refreshing. And I think that anyone who can share that story about their sister like he did and really open themselves up and be vulnerable to a group of people like us listening, I think that just shows tremendous courage and what a great leader he is. So thanks for listening. We hope you've been inspired. As always, this is a Robin Hood Multi Academy Trust production. You can follow us and you can engage with us on Twitter via at Robin Hood Trust. And until next time, catch you later.